Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea, the seventh chapter. We just finished the sixth chapter. Hosea chapter 7. And as I said before, we try to take it verse by verse. But I would like to give you a division for this chapter that will help us to comprehend what we'll find here. The first seven verses, we see the moral depravity of Israel. Verses 1 through 7. The moral depravity of Israel. And then, verses 8 through 16, the second half of the chapter, we have mingling with the heathen nations. And we know that because of that, they adopt heathen ways and vices and so on. And we'll get into that as we progress along with our lesson. <coughs> so, I hope everyone has a Bible. If you don't have, we have several there in the hallway that Brother Nichols will get you one. If you don't have one, slip your hand up and he'll get that for you right away. So, let's look at chapter 7 of Hosea, verse 1. And the Lord says this, When I would have healed Israel... Then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. And we're going to uh, talk about what he found with Ephraim. We've told you before that sometimes Ephraim and Israel are used interchangeably, and sometimes Israel is addressed through Ephraim. And so if you'll notice here, it's a kind of a double play on both the the names. It says, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. God was ready to forgive them, to heal them of their backsliding. And of all the problems that uh, had come upon them because of their departure from God. And he is always more and willing and ready than uh, sometimes people think. Even for you and I today. When God would uh, heal us of our backsliding, well, then He discovers sometimes that we have iniquity more than uh, there's a greater manifestation of evil that's discovered. And so, consequently, what do we have? Have more chastening and more suffering as a result. So, notice He says, When I would have healed Israel. When I would have delivered them, when I would have saved them, when I would have brought them back to myself. Then, I circle the word then. Some of you have seen how I mark my Bible up and sometimes I underline a verse or a word and then circle a verse, a word and, and various things in, within the verse. And you should write in your Bible so you can understand it. And I don't mean to defile it in any sense of the word. I'm talking about just having... Uh, having a good thorough study of the Bible, and sometimes it's better right in the margin or in the very verse itself, then you remember what you studied there. If you say, I'll come back and I'll write that on a piece of note paper somewhere, well then the first thing you know, well you say, what chapter, what book was that even? Let alone what chapter and verse. So if you study it right in your Bible, you're going to be more knowledgeable of the Bible. You know, I'm convinced that this is a day and hour when people need to study their Bibles more. And if you uh, look around the, the uh, Christian world, you'll find too much ignorance of the Bible and what it really says and means. And so let's try not to uh, fall into that category. Let's try to be Bible students and study the Word of God. So, what happened here? A greater manifestation of evil was discovered than what he would, what God was already putting up with. Not that God didn't know it at the beginning, but He's showing that it came to light 
as a reason for not healing them, he continues to chastise them. So when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood. Look at all the accusations here. And the thief cometh in and the troop of robbers spoileth without. Sad situation to be in, isn't it? When God has to look upon us and see more evil than uh, really should be expected of, of mankind. And especially in the church or in our Christian lives as individuals. In verse 2 it says, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. They didn't think about the fact that if they did not turn, they did not turn in repentance, but they didn't think about the fact that God sees it all and knows all about it. You know, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. And it says, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And there are several passages speak of God looking down upon a man. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any that did understand. I have a message. The Lord looked down. The Lord came down. The Lord sat down. The Lord lay down. And the Lord is coming down. And that's a message on the whole story of Jesus. He looked down upon man. He came down from heaven. And He laid down His life on the cross. He ascended back to heaven and He's coming down again to take us back to Himself. You know what a glorious day that will be when we're taken out of the sins and sufferings of this world. We used to sing a little song, Some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. Some golden daybreak, battle's all won. We'll wake up singing. And it says something about look through the blue or go through the blue. Some golden daybreak for me and for you. But anyway, if we... Paul says, if we in this life only have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. And I think the more we see the sufferings of this world and the trials that you and I individually have to go through day by day, that we realize what a blessed time that will be and day of rejoicing that will be. Uh, Let me just stop and say that boys and girls, young people, young married couples, older people, All of us have our own sufferings and trials to go through. And if you think you're the only one, you just look around and consider the fellow right next door and think about what he has to put up with. And all of us have them to face. And we thank God for grace to do it. All right, let's look at this. Verse 2, And they consider not in their hearts. Where do you consider God? In your hearts. That I remember all. God knows all. He remembers all. Remember all their wickedness? Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. It's what they do that besets them. We talk about a man's besetting sins. We have besetting sins. And our own doings beset us about, as it did Israel of old. They did not turn to God in repentance. And I want you to notice verse 3. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. Notice, princes, their leaders... And political heads were as corrupt as the priests and as corrupt as the people. And look, they make the king glad with their wickedness. Doesn't seem to bother them. 
I wonder if it doesn't seem to bother many leaders today with the wickedness of this nation, does it? And uh, I know some are, but I wish more of them were bothered with it. And we do more about it, don't you? Because we live in a sinful nation in spite of the fact that we call it a Christian nation. There's wickedness on every hand. Sin on every hand. Corruption on every hand. And uh, so those doings, our own doings, will beset us as it did them. In verse 2, keep your eyes fixed on the Scripture because that's what we try to teach. And it says, they are before my face. God sees it all and knows all about it. They make the king glad and their, with their wickedness and the princess with their lies. Now look at verse 4. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker. Adulterers. This is a graphic description of their moral depravity. The baker, meaning their own evil will and imagination, they let their own inward being heat up their adulterers' lusts, who ceaseth from rising after it kneaded the dough until it be leavened. Just let it go on, and the oven heats it up, and it rises up, and he just lets it alone till it reaches full rising. And you know, that's the individual as well as uh, the nation of people were spoken of here, but the individuals within it. So it was a graphic description of their depravity. It says, In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. Not only were they adulterers, but they were drunkards as well. You know, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at wine. You look at Proverbs, let me see. I believe it's the 23rd chapter. Let me get it for you. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29. Look at it. It says, Who hath woe? <coughs> Excuse me. Who hath sorrow? The Proverbs here keep asking questions. Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? All these questions ask in one verse. I used to know people that here in Rio Dosa, some of them would have sorrow. Some of them would have contentions. They'd want to fight. Others would babble. See? Others, wounds without a cause. They do themselves no harm than anyone else. And others, all of them have redness of eyes. You know, you can walk up to a person that's been drinking, and you can tell it almost immediately if you're used to detecting it. doesn't take you long to figure out what's wrong with the fellow. Isn't it a sad thing? That is so evident. And they, then they think they're hidden from it. They'll say, I haven't been drinking. Eyes red. Can't talk straight. I, I haven't been drinking. You know what I mean? Babbling. Redness of eyes. And then all the other things that are caused by it. They that tear long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. That means, uh, when, uh, of course, that simply means the fermented wine that will intoxicate you and make you drunk. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Who wants to be bitten by a snake? Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. 
Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. This identifies with the sailors out on the ocean. They have stricken me, thou shalt, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I wake? I will seek it yet again. We find that a person that's victimized by drugs, as this is, there's a mental anguish that is brought upon them, social anguish, and physical anguish. All of these things are a result of being addicted to liquor. Since we have some new folks in our congregation, some of you that uh, have been here quite a while maybe have never heard it. Should I? I guess I will. I'll go ahead and tell you. <clears throat> to describe an alcoholic, <clears throat> my dad taught me a little thing. He was an officer up here and he had to deal with drunkards all the time and take them home and try to get them off the street. And Sometimes they have to put them in jail. Sometimes he'd have to chain them to a pine tree. He couldn't do that nowadays. Jail was over at Carrizosa, a long ways over there in a muddy road. And uh, he just chain them there and handcuff them till they till they got sobered up a little, two or three hours in this cold night, you know, sober up pretty quick and he'd let them loose. But anyway, to make a long story short, I had a lot of experience dealing with those uh, kind of people. And my dad taught me a little thing. He says, uh, it was in the late November as well as I remember, I was walking down the street in modern pride when my heart began to flutter and I lay down in the gutter and a pig came up and lay down by my side. As I lay there in the gutter with my heart all in a flutter, a lady passing by was heard to say, You can tell the man that boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. So anyway... Alcohol will not do you any good. Back in our text in Hosea chapter 7, it says here, notice in verse uh, uh, 5, in the day of our king, chapter 7, verse 5, in the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. For they, verse 6, for they have made ready their heart like an oven. You see, it's already spoken up in verse 4. Their heart is like an oven, just heated up with doing what they want to do. While they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire with their, with their lusts, with all their wickedness, with their adulteress. If you glance at verses 4 through 6, put, six, put all these three thoughts together and all these, just combine these three verses and see exactly what is meant by their heart like an oven. And in the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. In verse 7, They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. Look at all the results. Their judges, their kings are fallen. And it says, None among them calleth unto me. None called upon the Lord. None prayed for forgiveness. None returned in repentance. Boy, if we couldn't bring that down to modern days now, could we? We have the same situation with people in the world today, people in our nation, disregarding God, failing to repent of sin. What would this nation be like today if there was real repentance nationwide for the sins that each and every individual is steeped in? 
I mean, it would transform the whole country, wouldn't it? If there would be that kind of nationwide revival to where people would say, this that I'm doing is a sin, and turn, get on their knees and turn to God and say, God, forgive me, save me, or even if they're Christians that are backslidden, as Israel was, return and turn back to God. There's no telling what. I'll guarantee you there wouldn't be an empty pew in this church tonight or in many of the churches around the land. There wouldn't be. In this little community that we have, we'd have to get those folding chairs out, wouldn't we? But you know what's wrong? People today are just much like Israel was in that day. None will call upon God and turn to God. Thank God for a faithful few that will. Beloved, it's time that each and every one of us It doesn't hurt if we daily examine our hearts and repent of our sins. In fact, it's the best thing we can do. Examine, you know, the the psalmist said, Thou hast tried my heart and my reins, my inmost being. And there's many scriptures that show that we we need to have our very hearts uh, open before God so that we repent of our wickedness. Sometimes a person says, Well, I don't have any. I doubt that. Most of us do. Jesus showed that even the evil thoughts that we have are are sinful in the sight of God. The Bible says that he that hateth his brother without a cause is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 1 John. Jesus said that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already. And you know, thou shalt not steal. Sometimes we steal a person's dignity. I mean, there's a lot of things. If we look at the Bible... And take it seriously to our hearts. We have plenty to repent of. Do we not? I think we do. So let's look at this. It says, verse uh, uh, 7, They are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges and all their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. Now then, verse 8 says, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Now this is the uh, section. We've just been... Before we uh, get into this verse, we've just been talking about the moral depravity of Israel. And the verses from 8 on through 16 shows them mingling with the heathen. We said that was the division of this chapter. Mingling with the heathen. And notice what it says here. Ephraim, and this is addressing Israel, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Mixed himself among the people. The people here do not refer to the people of Israel. In many cases, it does refer to God's own people. But here it's referring to the heathen nations round about. The people are the heathen. And And God's people were called to be a separated people. There are not any separation in this. Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. We find that every time that God's people of old mixed themselves among other nations, it brought, it brought destruction, it brought opposition, it brought uh, uh, heartache. They were thorns in their sides. And all back in the book of Judges, if you'll study where God's people would depart from Him, and they had cried to God because of the oppressor, and God would send a deliverer, a Savior. In the book of Judges, all through. And he would send someone to deliver them, like Gideon, Samson, and various other ones, all through the book. And every time that they were delivered, then they'd go and look like they were going good for a little while, and all of a sudden they'd fall right back into the same sins. 
the same compromises, the same non-separation. The Bible teaches a Christian is to be separated. The Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Wouldn't it be another wonderful thing if we could see the difference in Christian people today and the worldling? And that's what we need to see. We need to see people that when, uh, when the general public looks upon you, they can tell that you're a child of God. By the way you act, by the way you talk. I mean, you have clean speech. You have politeness. You have love. You have mercy. You have compassion. You have understanding. And God's people can be known. Jesus said, by this shall what? All men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. And that's how the world knows. So, love covers a multitude of sins. So, we need a lot of things in our Christian lives to be true to what we profess and what we believe. Let's hurry along with this now. I want you to notice. Separated people. You know, the Bible says, before we leave this verse, Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. Before we go any further, let me just say this. That Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 12. Remember? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says, not, be, be not conformed to this world. Uh, Peter says much the same thing in 1 Peter, I believe it's chapter 1, maybe verse 14. He says, as obedient children, check it out for me, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust and your ignorance. But then he goes on to say, as he has called you to be holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conversation. So, other verses there. But anyway, for it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. So God expects us to be separate. Now notice that verse 8 again. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Have you ever seen... Well, I don't know if your wife has ever made them or not. Mine hasn't at all like this. She's always cooked them on both sides. <clears throat> Sometimes when I try to cook them. A pancake, you know, you put a pancake in the skillet and you think, boy, this is going to be nice. And it burns on one side and you turn it over and it's raw on the other side. Or you turn it too quick and it's raw on one side and it's burnt. A cake not turned. I mean, it's not anything much sorrier than to eat a half-baked pancake. And a half-cooked pancake. And that's what this is. Ephraim is a cake not turned. It's worthless. You have to throw it away. You have to chunk it out. It's no good. And look, verse 9. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Isn't it a terrible thing not to know it? Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. I mean, a fellow comes along and he says, Uh-oh, I've got some gray hair there. And all of a sudden it dawns on him that it's there. So, he did not, they did not know their speedy decay. They did not know what was happening as far as their strength. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. His strength was being taken away by the strangers, the heathen. And also, he himself had the marks of weakness. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. Knoweth not. Now, verse 10. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face. You know what pride does. We had a whole section on pride not long back. 
And I mean, it causes lots of problems, doesn't it? The Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible says only by pride cometh contention. The Bible tells us not to be lifted up with pride. We fall into condemnation of the devil. A young preacher, especially Paul instructing Timothy, he said, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. That's the downfall of more, more young preachers than anything that happens. Some ladies in the church come along, preacher, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And the first thing you know, he puffs himself out, puffs himself out. And we used to have a little old song on the record about the frog. And uh, my son had one. He played it over and over again. It says he puffed himself out until suddenly he burst. The downfall, you and I need to, to wake up to the fact that we're all guilty and need to not be lifted up with pride. And there's so many things. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I have it in the back of my Bible. I gave it to you in the lesson before, so I won't bother at this time. But pride brings destruction. How can we not have pride? We can think properly about ourselves. We can think properly about other folks. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, I believe it may be about verse 5 along there, that he says that every man ought to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. I'm going to check it out and see if i got the right verse. Maybe not. Romans 12. No, it's verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. If we think soberly, and we've had this lesson time and time again, it doesn't hurt to repeat it, uh, you're not to think more highly, that's being lifted up with pride. Uh, Paul tells Timothy and Titus not to, to let, he says, let no man despise thee, or let no man despise thy youth. Don't be a doormat for someone to walk on. But to think what? The middle ground is to think soberly. The middle ground of your thinking. You're not better than ever other fellow and you're not worse than anyone else. But God has given you the measure of faith whereby you can maintain your dignity and uh, be comfortable with all people. Some people say, well, I'm, 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 I can't uh, deal with the high ups I can't deal with the bum on the street. If you think soberly, you can stand your ground with either. And that's where we need to be. Alright, let's go on with this. It says, um, verse 10, And the pride of Israel testified to his face. You have Hosea 7, verse 10. And they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all this. Even with all this, they do not return. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt and go to Assyria like a silly dove. They're without understanding. They do not know who to turn to for help. Remember, they go to the heathen nations round about them for their help instead of turning to God. Ephraim is like a silly dove without heart. Without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. I want you to notice uh, Isaiah 31. I've given you this before. Verse 1. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. God says, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses. That doesn't mean stay on their backs. That means trust in them. Of course, you, you better stay on them too if you get on them. It says, uh, and stay on horses and trust chariots 
because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Don't trust in horses or chariots just because there are many. And that word could apply to both ways. We know that they trusted in the chariots. They trusted in the horses. And it says, because there are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. So those that go down to Egypt for help, back in Hosea chapter 7, quickly. Ephraim, verse 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They don't know where to turn. And it says, when, when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. In fact, that net itself was Assyria. God was using Assyria to bring the chastening to Israel. Sometimes when we seek in the wrong way, God uses that very thing that is wrong in our lives to bring us to our knees. That's what He did to Israel of old. He would permit the nations round about to bring uh, oppression or whatever it was or to chasten them so that they would wake up and return. And so it was a net that God was using. He says, look at this, verse 12, When they shall go, I will spread my net. And that net was Syria. Upon them, I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Look at that. God's chastening hand was still upon them. God reproves them for their manifold sins, and God's wrath is against them for their hypocrisy and their idolatry. And He is still going to judge them because they have failed to repent. Our nation, we pray, is not in for the judgment that it deserves. Aren't we glad that, I believe it's Psalm 103 that says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But God is merciful. If God had dealt with us after our sins as a people, where would we be today? He's had mercy upon us. And we ought to be thankful for the everlasting mercies of God. The Bible has a lot to say about God's mercies. Even after David had sinned, I believe it's Psalm 51, he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. Listen. According to Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions. Then he goes on to say, Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and clear when thou judgest. One verse says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Alright, let's look back at this. It says uh, in verse uh, 13 now, Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. And not only turned from God, they ran from God. It says, Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Though God had redeemed them, they had spoken lies against Him. While they cried with their mouth, their heart did not. Their heart was not with God. Notice verse 14. They have not cried unto me with their heart. See that 14th verse? They did not turn to God in prayer. They cried to God with their mouths and they wanted God to be merciful, but they didn't cry to God with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assembled themselves for corn and wine and they rebelled against me. And they had gone into idolatrous worship. We're going to find in the next chapter where they had continued worshiping the calves in Bethel and Samaria and so on. But right now we confine ourselves to these thoughts. 
And it says in verse 15, Though I, though I have bound and strengthened their arms, God's the one that held them up, yet do they imagine mischief against me. His, God was the only one that's holding them up. He's going to use the figure later on. How he held them by their arms to, as if you, you know, when a little child is starting to walk, you put your hands under its armpits and hold it up and get it kind of going. And if it starts to fall, keep him from falling over. That's what God does to us. We don't even know how to walk straight. And he puts his arms under our armpits here and, and supports us. So notice what it says here. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet they... They imagine mischief against me. And verse 16 says, They return, but not to the Most High. I mean, conversion is to God, right? People talk about being converted. You read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, I believe it is. It says to the Thessalonians, listen carefully, how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1 9. So, it's turning to God from what? Idols. And it says here, they return, but not to the Most High. Thessalonians was true repentance. Here it was not. They are like a deceitful bow. A deceitful bow was undependable. If you have a bow that you can't put the arrow in and shoot straight, you better toss that aside and get you a new bow. Some of you hunt with bows and use bow and arrow. You better have one that's, that's good enough to do the job. If you don't, when I was a little boy, we used to make a bowl out of, a, you know, these little old nail kegs they used to have that had the staves in the sides and you'd take the wire from around it. And I'd take one of the thinnest staves that I could find. It's got a kind of a bowl in it, you know. And I'd drill a hole right in the middle of it. Then I'd put a, stretch a piece of inner tube tied on one end and the other, stretch it real tight. And you had about that much curve in it. And uh, then I'd get some arrows and not put feathers on them or anything on the backside, but I would wrap the, uh, like a dowel pin about yay long, and uh, take this little copper wire and start in, sharpen it like a pencil down, whittle it off like a pencil, and you'd hold the wire at the top of that sharp place, and, and you would go down to the bottom and you'd start wrapping it round to the, you get back up to the top of the slope. And then you'd twist it there, that little copper wire, and it was heavy enough and real real neat point that you could shoot through a tin can there, the air would go all the way through, and you'd shoot it up in there, it'd go at least oh, 150 feet up in there and go way over like that's what I, how I made a bow. But you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And I didn't have anything else to make it out of, so uh, that worked pretty good. Anyway, people wouldn't even know what you're talking about nowadays, I don't think. But on the other hand, I tried to explain it to you so you'd know. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow, undependable. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt, the land where they had gone to trust. Well, it shows that they needed to turn to God. And chapter 8 is going to be another interesting story because God is going to sound the trumpet of judgment coming upon them and it's going to be announced. And then we'll get into the 8th chapter. Thank you very much for your patience and your kind attention.